0: Amen, amen. Good morning. And uh, I think there's some visitors here for the first time. If you are here for the first time, we'd love to get to know you. If you want more information about the church, please fill out a communication card. You can put it on the back of the sound booth back there. We want to know how we can pray for you and connect with you. And uh, later on during our announcements, there are plenty of opportunities for you to get more involved in the body. Uh, So if you are here for the first time or you're a member, regular attender here Uh, We've been going through 1 Timothy, and uh, you're jumping in in the middle of our series. You're really jumping in the middle of a a two-part series. And so um, Paul spends most of the time in chapter 5 dealing with widows, and if Paul's going to devote that many verses to it, so are we. And so this will be part 2. Part 1 was uh, discerning family care, and this is more directing family care. So uh, here's my admission right out front. This is not an easy text to preach. Um, No pastor when asked to speak at a conference or guest preach is going to come with the text on, on widows and expect to wow anyone. So, and I'm not going to wow you with that either. Um, so uh, bear with me, but more importantly, we don't skip over texts that may not seem to apply to us directly because often they have the most to teach us. They, they, they challenge us in ways that would not be, that we often wouldn't be. And so this morning we're going to get to, really I want to get to what the heart of this text is, and then we can see what God's purpose and inspiration was. Why it is preserved in in Scripture and what it has to teach the church today. Even a church who admittedly does not have the need for widow's ministry the way that the church in Ephesus did. And so if you were here last time, we're going to build off of where we ended the last message. Uh, We, as the church, as Christians... Uh, we've, we start at the beginning of chapter 5 with the picture of the family of God. That in Christ we are brother and, and sister. There are older saints, mother and father, and younger saints, children in the faith. And we, we, we love the body of Christ. We are a family because of Christ's sacrificial love for us. And so the church, we care for those who can't care for themselves. As the scriptures say, like the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, because we are the widows, the orphans, the sojourners. We are the ones without husband, without parent, without home. We are the ones without inheritance. We are the ones without, without hope. We are the ones who are, who are lost if some benevolent kinsman redeemer does not come and bring us home. And he calls us home as sons in his house. He calls us and unites him to, our, to us for eternity as bride and so when we look at widow we need to look at our state in human nature we are born into sin we are born as widows we are born without anyone to provide for us anyone to to care for us and we may get real high on ourselves and think we can be self-sufficient and all that but when you die what do you have to show for all of your labors in this earth You come into this world alone and you die alone, but the gospel is good news for that. So this this bride, this people, this family, once we are brought in, we should be people who are grateful above all else, grateful to our God as as redeemer, who took us from our sin, from our weeping and, and, and mourning and our hopelessness and given us assurance and faith and encouragement. And we should love our groom who is the most worthy husband, who is more faithful than any man in here will ever be, who loves his bride so much so that he would lay down his life for her. We are those people who work out of this. And so this causes his people, his bride, his family to be radically generous and at the same time radically discerning. And we're going to look at both of those this morning. So if you are here last time, there was a logical flow of the text, verses three through eight. And there's a parallel in verses nine through 16. They, they follow the exact same logical progression. Here's, here's the idea. Um, here's a good use of church resources, do this. Here's a poor use of corporate resources, don't do this. Um, here's what you do instead because there, there are spiritual implications. But first, if at all possible, Let it start in the home. Take care of it in your home first. So that's exactly what we're going through this morning. Uh, We're going to take a little bit different angle than we did last time, but it's the same idea. Do this. Don't do this. Do this instead. Do it in your own home first. Now, let's look at our text in 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their own households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If believing women have relatives who are widows, let them care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and awesome and good. You are so generous. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You know the hair on our very head. You spoke the world into existence, yet you know and meet our every need. You've created man in your image. How much more valuable are we than the lilies of the field and the ravens and the air? Lord, you care for the greatest to the least. And in your common grace, you care for all mankind everywhere. But in your saving in particular grace, you provide for your church. And you provide your church that she would be your hands and feet. And care for the least of these, our brothers. That the saints would be supported and encouraged, fed and clothed, nourished physically and spiritually. Lord, may we be a generous and gracious people. May we be a discerning and prudent people, that Christ would be glorified in this church and in every faithful church across the globe. May we be a witness to our familial love, our financial stewardship, and our spiritual fidelity, that we would be able to discern people and times and situations and resources, that we would Use all we have to further your kingdom, to build up your saints for your glory, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So right away, in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled. We have to talk about enrollment. Um, If you grew up in the modern church, um, there's the idea of the church role. This is not that. Uh, the, the church role is basically anyone for most churches, it's anyone who has ever attended, who has ever checked it, checked a, a, a box, who ever said that this is my church home, even if they've been dead for a hundred years. Um, I, 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 won't name names, but I talked to a pastor recently who came into a new church. The, 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 the church has around a thousand attendees, um, on a Sunday morning, give or take. They have, uh, over five, no, excuse me, less than a thousand, about 800 on a Sunday morning over 5,000 on the church rolls. Most of these people, they do not know or are dead. Most of the people attending, they don't know. And so he realizes, confiding in me, like this is a problem that we're gonna have to deal with. One of the first things he directed the deacons to do is cut down the rolls. Because they actually do have a lot of widows. And so they have to discern, am I responsible for all 5,000 of these people? Or am I responsible for the women who are truly widows? who have been in this church for for years and maybe have fallen through the cracks and need the care of the elders and, and the deacons. So this is not a church role, but enrollment here is financial provision. This is someone who is enrolled in the church, meaning that the church cares for all of their, their uh, food and, and clothing needs, that the church makes sure that everything they have is taken care of. And so when we talk about in enrollment, these widows became the responsibility of the entire Ephesian church because they had nowhere else to go. They had no other option. And these mothers in the faith are brought in and cared for as, as mothers. So when you read the scriptures, widows are always to be pitied and to, be, and to have compassion. It's always a, a lowly, dependent class. And God has particular compassion on widows. Because in His design, He has created men to protect and to provide for their families. And in that cu- culture that was highly patriarchal, without a man in the family, the, the, the woman has very little hope. Um, there are one of these, just one example the Book of Lamentations begins with Jerusalem, Zion, the picture of a weeping widow. Zion is a, a weeping widow who goes to sleep in tears every night because these city, the, the, the streets that used to be filled with worship are now empty and are overridden with their oppressors and their, their captors. And so the Lord has a particular uh, place of concern for widows Another thing that we usually don't recognize in our modern culture, um, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and, and mother. The, the, the main impetus of that is you, you will be respectful. In that culture, there was no option. If you weren't respectful, you deserved capital punishment. But the honor there, as we're going to see in this chapter and we're going to see next week, actually uh, really emphasized financial provision. Honor your, your father and mother. This is why when the religious elites said that some of their income was, was Corbin and they didn't provide for their mother and father, Jesus was incensed at them. Because you were expected to care for your parents financially as they cared for you into their old age. And so that is built within the fifth commandment. And so, as I mentioned in the introduction, when we think about widows, when we think about enrollment, why would the church care for someone who's not their, their biological family? When you understand your identity in Christ and that you are part of his spiritual family, we know what it means to be helpless. If you are in Christ, you know what it means to be destitute apart from him. You know what it means to be, to be without hope, without, without provision because your soul is bankrupt. If you don't, you may not be in Christ. We are widows spiritually apart from him. We have no hope. We have no inheritance. But in him, we become a bride. But without him, where would we go? What would we do if our Lord was not merciful to us? And so we who have been shown mercy of all people should show mercy. Uh, I want to look at a text in Isaiah 54. Um. Isaiah is often called the gospel of the Old Testament because the gospel is throughout the book. But here we get the gospel in these very terms of a widow who finds a husband in her maker, who is her redeemer. This is the gospel. This is every one of us apart from the work of Christ. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse four. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. He's not speaking only to women here. He's speaking to all of Israel. He is speaking to the, 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 the remnant of the faithful throughout the centuries. Anyone who looks and says, "What am I to do? Where is my nation? Where is my inheritance inheritance? Where is my heritage?" Those who look to the Lord, remember your widowhood no more. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Those are the best words and the only words of hope that any bankrupt spiritual widow will ever hear. And how is it that a widow now has a husband? Verse 6, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. What a picture of redemption. That for us it feels like eternity that we're walking in darkness, those of us who are converted later in life, but to the Lord it is a brief moment. And he gathers you at the right time and brings you in as a loving husband. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. You deserve God's overflowing anger. But praise God. Through Christ his son, he shed his blood so that we might receive everlasting love. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is why caring for widows is so foundational in the church. We get this. We understand this. We have lived this if you are in Christ. If you haven't, I hope you pay attention this morning. We talked about last week that there is a daily distribution to the widows. One of the first issues that arises in the church we'll look at this brief, or, or pretty soon in our Wednesday Night Bible study is that there's a division. There's, there, there's partiality being shown to the widows, an external division between Hellenistic or Greek uh, widows and Jewish or, or you know, purely ethnically Jewish widows. this is not good. So the elders, the apostles put together a plan and make sure that they are cared for in their daily distribution. These women had no hope. They were daily dependent on the Lord and the Lord provided for them through his church. And he made sure that there was no partiality or distinction among them. And so as we get into the widows in our passage, I think this is very much a microcosm for the visible church. So as we look at these different types of widows, these different types of women, we're gonna look at different types of people in the church. So let's jump in in our text, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. So understand, we understand enrollment and what's at stake here in this being a gospel outpouring of church ministry. Then there's a list here. Let the widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has wiped, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has developed or devoted herself to every good work. That's quite the resume. This is the faithful woman. We're gonna call her the faithful widow. She is the, she pictures the faithful Christian. She is devoted to her bridegroom. This is the same widow. Remember, I said our last passage had a parallel. Verse five, we looked at this last time. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. These widows are the faithful. These are the mature Christians who should be honored and encouraged and supported. Those who honor the Lord are to be honored in our tone, in our speech, and with our finances. So let's look at this this resume briefly. So there are two categories here: there are true widows and then young widows. So she uh, should be enrolled if she's not less than sixty years of age. Ladies, it's good news. Under sixty, you're still a young woman in their in their context. This is this is the. Uh, This is the 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 around the average life expectancy. So we could probably read if they're under 80 here. So like, so you're still of marrying age, in your 60s and 70s apparently. (laughs) So this is not a woman who has other options. Having been the husband of or the wife of one husband, she's already proven faithful in her covenant relationship. She has lived her life. She has had a husband. She has a reputation for good works. This is is ongoing. She has married, but she is faithful in good works. This is something that she is recognized for. This word for reputation could also be translated witness. She is a faithful witness for good works. She is known to be a faithful woman. Also, she has brought up children. This is a woman who has raised children in the faith. She has brought them up. They have become mature. She has shown herself to serve her household and her family well. This is a woman who is also hospitable. She has used her house for ministry. She has brought in strangers. She has brought in members of the church. She has brought in uh, uh, traveling saints. Her house has been a place for, for ministry. She may have never taught publicly but she is teaching every time she cooks a meal and washes the feet of those who visit her home. This washing the feet of the saints, this is a servant's job. This is a lowly task, but Jesus sanctified it and made it glorious to show the type of servanthood that the church should have. I will put myself below you. I will do what is undignified, so that I will show you that you are cared for and loved and honored. This is the type of woman she is. She is a great servant. She's a great ter- caretaker. For those who are afflicted in, in the church, I love all the stories of, of church history. Um, I, I read uh, Daniel Defoe's book on the, the plague year, very similar to COVID and all that. Um, the church acted very differently then when the plague went through and it was actually killing thousands of people, the church, especially widows, would care for those who were being sick and putting their own lives at, at peril. And many, many, many people came to faith because of that, because the church did what no one else was willing to do. Their own families threw them out into the street when they got infected. But even when their husbands and families died, these women nurtured and cared for those who were sick in that day. And Christians have done this throughout the ages. There is a beautiful picture of this in Acts 9. Uh, A a, a woman who exemplifies all this, including this last quality here, has devoted herself to every good work. So uh, turn to Acts 9. It will also be on the screen. I want to show you just one example of this. An, An unfortunate name, but a beautiful example. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated to mean Dorcas. Sorry. She was full of good works and acts of charity. That is a woman you want to commend, one who is full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia, uh, yeah, since, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him. And urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him in the upper room. And the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. What a beautiful picture of the church. This faithful saint has died. And the the ones who are most affected are the ones who most need help, the widows. She cared for them. She made garments for them. And they recognized her impact on them. But Peter pulled them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. I love that. That the women who were mourning at her bedside get to witness her resurrection. And they all get to celebrate and at it, uh, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. The Lord does not always do this, but he does reward the faithful. Sometimes we get rewards in this life, sometimes we don't, but this is a beautiful picture of the church that I want you to see. Um, This is the opposite of the squeaky wheel syndrome that uh, infects most churches. You know what the squeaky wheel syndrome is? If, if you've got, uh, you ever had a little, one a little uh, here you go, perfect example. Walmart shopping cart. There is, always, there is always one squeaky wheel or one wobbly wheel. And I always get that cart for some reason. But that's the one that, that you pay attention to. I will do anything to shut up that squeaky wheel so I can have a smooth drive. That's how many pastors, pastor churches. The ones who cry loudest, the ones who complain the most are the ones who get the most attention. And the mature and the faithful are neglected. The church is not to be putting out the largest fires and dealing with the squeaky w- wheels only. Those things have to be dealt with. But so many churches, the mature and the faithful, are disregarded, are ignored. As long as they show up and as long as they give and as long as they serve, I just assume they're, they're good. I've got needy people here who won't help themselves or are immature. And then the faithful are left by the wayside. We are to honor those who are faithful. We are to recognize them. We are to encourage them. We are to support them. And yes, there is time for the squeaky wheel, but the squeaky wheel does not drive the cart. It can't. But when the squeaky wheel does drive the cart, you're gonna end up where you don't wanna be. That went way better than I thought it was going to. All right. So this faithful woman She will certainly receive a heavenly reward, but like we saw with Dorcas, God also provides an earthly reward. How encouraging is it that the woman who has spent her entire life serving her Savior will in her final years be served by his church? She will not have to worry if she will eat or she will have clothes because her spiritual children will take care of her. I want to look at a couple of Psalms that tells us how the Lord loves and provides for his saints. Psalm 34 and Psalm 37. Psalm 34, 8 through 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Saints, do you rest in that? Do you know that? Have you seen that? The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We're not in this life to get all of our pleasures and wants and all these things. The Lord does that sometimes, but we lack no good thing. Everything we need, he provides for us. And we see that beautifully in his saints and among his saints. We heard, testimony, we heard several testimonies to that this morning, how the body has loved and cared for the body. And the Lord has positioned us in each other's lives to care for one another. The fact that you have brothers and sisters in this church who love you is a reflection of the God who loves you. And the God who loves you enough to surround you with those. And it breaks my heart when people don't have that. When they isolate themselves and they think that I can do this all on my own. And I don't need anyone else but myself. And they wander around in this disconnected Christianity that is not Christianity at all. Let's look at Psalm 37 as well. Psalm 37 verse 25. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Do we think that the widows and orphans that he brings in his family are going to starve now? He redeems them just to leave them on the side of the road? If there is no husband, the Lord will provide through his bride. If there is no husband for these widows, the Lord will provide through his bride. And so now we can apply this to ourselves. You need to know, saints, you serve a God who provides for every need. You will not lack what you need. You will often lack what you want, and that is for your own good. But I love how Desmond touched on this last week, that with our theology, we have no trouble believing that Christ came and died for us so that we could have eternal salvation. But so often we treat God like we're on our own until then. I know it's not just me. The same God who took on flesh to walk among us, to lay down his life for us, promised to never leave or forsake us. I will be with you until the end of the age. That means this age, this day, and tomorrow, and next week. Our God will not forsake his saints. Praise God. We don't serve a distant deity who doesn't know us and doesn't know our cares or our needs. But how often do we struggle when we're not, we don't know how we're going to pay our electric bill next month? We don't know what we're going to do when our car is, is broken down or a family member gets sick. He doesn't promise that everything is going to be exactly how we intend. But he promised we will never lack a good thing. And even in our distress, it is a good thing. And sometimes he does more than we want him to. How many times has the Lord provided for you something um, that seems selfish, like I really would. Love a new espresso machine or whatever. And you're like, ah, that's, that's too selfish. I'm not going to name it and claim it. And the, Lord, and the Lord provides it. I don't need one, by the way. Um, but I, I, heard, I heard a pastor say one time, he, he talked about how he wanted to pick up golf. And then in his office the next week he had three sets of golf clubs. It's so a whole different congregation. I'm not saying that either. But how often have they, we, we we desired things that are amoral? They're not good or evil in and of themselves. And the Lord provides. How many times have we desired uh, some kind of experience or or, or or some kind of something that is that, that we would uniquely enjoy? And the Lord has has provided it. And the Lord has has given us stuff we don't even ask for because we have sought good things. This is why I love, uh, if we're still in Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Our God is generous. He is not stingy. He is the giver of every good gift. But first, delight yourself in the Lord. That is our first aim. That is why these widows are honored. Because they delight themselves in the Lord, and he gives them the desires of their heart. Jesus told us something similar in Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, it will be opened. Remember, this is still, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We read that earlier. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil. So when people read this, they, they normally put the emphasis on the ask. Oh, I need to ask, and, and, and God will give me. This is to show us how good God is. Not the, emph- the emphasis is, is not on asking. It is on the goodness of God and our own wickedness. If you then who are evil know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We serve a good God and a faithful God who provides, and we can ask him, and we can go before him. And often he provides through his saints. Because the one who gives and the one who receives are both blessed in the exchange. And the saints can rely on the Lord. So our call is to be faithful because he is faithful. And he will provide. We can trust him. Especially in a day when people get fearful or anxious about inflation or uncertainty or politics or wars and rumors of wars and all these things. Our God is not moved. Our God is not lacking in strength or ability to provide. And he has provided for his people through every age and every difficulty, many most greater than ours. So that is the faithful widow. She took up most of our time. But there is another one. There's another example in the visible church back in 1 Timothy verse 11. This is the restless widow. If the first one was was Mary, this one is Martha. If the first one is devoting herself to the Lord and resting at his feet, this one is a, a busybody whose heart has not learned to rest, who is unwise, who is, who is immature. She likes the idea of Jesus, but she's got her house to organize. She's got other things she'd rather do. She'd rather be decorating and looking like the good hostess than looking upon her Savior. This is a picture of the visible church. We have the faithful and we have the restless. This, that's why when Paul transitions here, but refused to enroll the younger widow. This is strong in the Greek. Don't do it. So let's clarify a few things before we, we move on. This sometimes is hard to hear with our modern sensibilities. We don't realize it, but we have been conditioned to be socialists. We have been conditioned to show compassion without discretion. We freely give to all without discernment, but is that wise? Is that what's best for them? Is that what's best for the church? And so many people read these texts, and they don't like when the church shouldn't give to someone, or the the church should draw a line, because we're only going to do good. But as we're going to see, giving to someone who is immature and who is restless is going to enable them in a way that is not good. So, Before we go any further, I want us to distinguish, this is a good lesson for us, between partiality and prudence. Partiality is what we saw in Acts, where the Jewish widows were getting bread and the Hellenistic widows were not. Partiality is showing preferential treatment because of some outward characteristic or perceived benefit. So don't refuse someone based on partiality. Don't refuse someone, as as James says, because he is rich or he has something to offer you. Or even in uh, Leviticus, look at Leviticus 19.15. There's even partiality in this, and we see much of this in our, in our culture. You shall, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. I think many Christians, and certainly our popular culture, thinks, well, we're doing this for the poor, so it must be good. You are not to show partiality to the poor or the rich. You are to exercise justice based on the merits. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And so the church must be discerning because the people of God have always been discerning. It is a perversion of of justice to show partiality to one particular group that you like over a group that you don't like. And so that we must get before we go any further. That's partiality, but prudence is different. So prudence understands the ethical or moral situation that's that's underneath. We look at internal consideration. We will provide for those who need to be provided for, but some need a swift kick in the pants. There is prudence to know which one will, will benefit from the church's funds, which one will benefit from the church's financial counseling, as we talked about last time. Prudence shows which one should be honored, In which one should be corrected, instructed, and discipled. A perfect example of this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Very similar. Uh, It's the previous book in your Bible. You can probably flip back one page to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Paul is dealing with the same issue. We're not talking about widows here, though. Uh, We're talking about men. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And not accord to the tradition uh, that you received from us. For you you yourselves know how you ought to uh, imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day. That we might not be a burden to any of you. Notice Paul's concern. He's not just saying, Ephesian church, you do this, but then feed me. Paul says, I came to you in, in Thessalonica to not be a burden. If, if I can work, I, I will work. He goes on to say, it was not because we do not have that right as apostles, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul himself is saying, this is how the church should operate. This is, how, this is what we should imi- imitate. For even when we are with you, uh, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him eat. It's not safe. He's not able to work. But if he's not willing to work, that is the height of greed and selfishness to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play and every one of you should support me. That is someone who is selfishly placing a burden on the church. If he is not willing to work, he shall not eat. And we, as the church, are doing them more harm than good if we, if we give money to people who are not willing to work, while others who are work are funding their folly, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. We're going to get to that language in just a moment. There are men in Thessalonica who are acting like the women in Ephesus. They are busy bodies. They're jumping around from house to house, from thing to thing, and they're becoming a drain on their brothers and sisters in the church. That person needs Correction. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. We're not to reward those who refuse to work or who are able to work. We should not expect others to pay so that we can play. That is the same idea that's going on here in 1 Timothy. Because he goes on, But refuse to enroll younger widows for when... He does not say if. He says when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry and so encourage condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So we gotta clarify this a little bit too. Number one, it's bound to happen. And let's be honest, this is the problem with younger widows and younger people in general. You are not content to be alone. That young woman, that young man becomes this gravitational pull. It's like the sun just you know pulling the, the, the planets toward itself. You can't look away because this is all you can think about. That is what he means by abandoning the faith. They are drawn away from Christ. Because if you're a widow in that day, if you were you're to be enrolled, you were to be devoted to him completely for the rest of your life. But your heart is divided when you're young. And Paul understands that. And we see an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He he talks to the single and the married. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Ideally, I have not met many unmarried men who are anxious about the things of the Lord. I'm sorry. Um, he should be, though. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. That I have met. Um, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her, her, hus- her husband, the married woman. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That is what Paul has in mind here. Do not call yourself a widow if you cannot be devoted to the Lord. Because if your devotion, your... your your passions draw you elsewhere, they're gonna draw you away from Christ and you will incur condemnation. This could also be translated judgment. I think he is talking about believers here. For abandoning your former, your, your former faithfulness. Widows are to be faithful. Remember, if you're not the woman in verse nine and 10 and you are young enough to get re- remarried, you, you probably should and learn how to be the woman in nine and 10. And so, you can't claim widow status and a singular devotion to Christ if you're scrolling eHarmony. You can't do both. This restless widow with her divided affections needs to be taught. She needs to be taught, she needs to be corrected, and she needs to be redirected. Or, she will get drawn away and she will be shipwrecked. So this also applies to the visible church. How many people in church say they love Christ? Yet their affections, their time, their efforts say anything but. How many people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you can't tell by where they spend their days or their times or what they talk about. They are drawn to all different things. This restless widow is many people sitting in pews in many churches and many people in this room. We as the church are to honor the faithful widow and encourage and admonish The restless widow. So in a moment of self-examination, is this you? What do your passions say about you? What does your time say about you? What do your affections say about you? Someone was to monitor you from a distance, what you did when you left this, this building, what would they find? I think 13 helps to show us how this abandonment is manifested, because it grows. Besides that, verse 13, they learn, this is a, uh, a vocational term. Idleness has become a job for them. They've gotten good at it. This is a practice that happens over time. Besides that, it leads to unacceptable behavior. So what they're basically saying is, well, the church is supplying my needs so I can indulge in my wants. And what is it we want? Does this not exemplify our culture to a T? All of the idleness and the luxury that we have, it gets us into trouble. This is also why Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 is warning against those who don't work. Become idle and busybodies, and you're going to be a drain on everyone else. These younger widows who are not truly widows, they've learned to be idlers, There are people in the church who are going about from house to house. They've learned to be idols. It it, it has become a job. It's just, you ever seen people who this is their entire day? And if you're not looking up at me and you're not looking at your Bible, you might be doing this right now. How ridiculous is that? Just just an idle job, going from house to house, from show to show, from app to app, from this thing to that thing. fellowshipping. Don't encourage that. They're going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips. Idle hands lead to idle chatter, and when you start chatting idly, it'll be about other people's business. It's very easy, from having too much time on your hands to having just enough time to talk about everybody else. These gossips are also busybodies. They are meddlesome. Having too much time on their hands gets them into trouble. This uh, this word is also used for those who practice black magic, or the uh, magical arts. So many women, probably, with too much time on their hands, begin to experiment with different types of religions and different types of mystical experiences. And so we must be discerning about what we support as a church and what we support individually. We must be discerning about the church, but also our family, our friends. Is it it loving to say, I'm going to give to all indiscriminately, even though I know you're going to blow it and make foolish decisions with it? Or is it a more loving thing to say, because I love you, I can't support this. I can't encourage this. I can't enable you to continue what you're doing. Do not refuse to enroll that one. So then there's, there's an answer. There's an antidote here. So I would have younger widows marry. This is Paul who says, I wish all of you were like me and, and you could be single to be completely devoted to the Lord. But I know you can't. Paul's not against marriage. He's saying here, and he's not against remarriage. Go get married so that you can be reminded of what your, your duties are. Here's a solution. If your heart burns, get married. Get married. If you are young, remarry, care for a family. The older woman has already done that. She's already had a marriage. She's already raised children. She's already shown herself to be faithful over time. You, young woman, young widow, you need to show yourself to be faithful over time. You, young, restless Christian, you need to show yourself to be faithful over time. Many of you young people who have zeal, it is fantastic. We want to see it tested. Over years. Remember, Paul's focus on being above reproach. This entire book is the elders to be above, above reproach, and Titus to be above reproach, and the women to be above reproach. Because if you don't, you'll give the adversary an occasion for slander. This word, insult, reviling. We know this to be true in our own lives as well. Isn't it when we have the most time on our hands, when we have no responsibilities, uh, when someone else is, is up uh, paying our bills, this is when we indulge in our flesh. This is when uh, the enemy begins to accuse us and revile us from outside and our flesh from the inside, our, our own enemies in our own mind, because we have too much time on our hands. The Lord has called us to be fruitful and to be faithful. And plus, if you're a, a Christian who does not practice what you preach. If you're someone who says, I'm a Christian, yet you're running around with all the other scandalous widows or women in the community, what kind of reputation do you think you're going to have for the nonbelievers? What kind of effect are you going to have for Christ? What will they say? You know, this is asked often, but would your neighbors, would your coworkers, would your classmates know that you were a Christian? How would they respond if someone told them? Don't give the enemy any opportunity for slander. Unfortunately, we have seen our fair share of this. When Paul says here in verse 15, for some have already strayed from Satan, it's the same woman he's talking about in verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. How many times... Have been in this church for a while? Have you been a Christian for a while? How many times have you seen an idle person? We've seen plenty of idle women who have a lot of time on their hands who go after false teachings, who get into slander and to gossip and division, who cause chaos in their own homes and in the church. Paul talks about them in Second Timothy, and we'll, we'll, we'll get there as well. So we must be aware of this, and we must not fund this So as we kind of wrap this section up, the good news in the gospel is this. These faithful widows are widows no longer. They are eternally united to a faithful husband who has bound himself to them, who laid his life down for them. So their identity is not that they are alone in this world because their hope is in the next. They have completely put their hope in God, their kinsman redeemer, He supplies everything they need. And even if they don't receive it in this world, they will receive treasures upon treasures in glory because of their faithfulness. We want to be the ones who are known in that first category, not the ones in the second. Yet the restless widow is truly alone. She's dependent on on herself. The church can't help her and shouldn't prop her up. She has need for a husband. But her idle folly, if she continues, will draw her away from Christ and lead her to destruction. And so, if this is you this morning, is this you? Are you idle? Are you depending on yourself? Are you drawn away by the gravitational pull of your own desires? Are you this restless widow? who needs to be devoted to Christ, who needs to look to her husband. So the final verse here, similar to to verse eight. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So once the practices and warnings are laid out, um, this must begin in your own family. Remember what Paul said in verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, this model in the church that men are to disciple and care for men and women are to disciple and care for women. Let her, this, this spiritual family, should begin in your own home. How can you expect the church to do something you're not willing to do yourself? Let not the church be burdened. This protects the rest of the body because there are no shortage of squeaky wheels. And in Ephesus, it could be argued that the church was doing too good of a job because they were caring for every widow, even the ones that shouldn't be cared for. There is no shortage of hands out asking for things. But there is a shortage of resources and effort of the body, especially in... Poor, first century, impoverished churches. And so they, they, they must show discernment. So the church is not burdened for those, with those who don't need help, like those who, those who won't work, but gets to honor properly those who deserve to be honored. So I want to close um, with an example from Ruth and uh, a couple of our conclusions. If, if you kind of work through this, this is the book of Ruth to a T. It is the gospel picture of how the Lord works through widows. Women who have no options. Naomi is this elderly widow. um, The grieving, helpless one who is left alone. Her father has died. Her sons have died. And her foreign daughter-in-laws should just go back to their own people and uh, find some comfort in their, their father's homes. One goes... But there's another one, Ruth, this woman who has no inheritance in Israel. She is a Moabite. She is a half-breed born under scandal to have nothing to do with Israel. She should have no right whatsoever to a kinsman redeemer. Her people are a foul stench upon history because of their perversion. Yet, what does she do? She says, your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. And she aligns herself with the covenant people of Israel. She aligns herself with the God who, knows that she, that, who she knows to be faithful. And what does the Lord do? He rewards Ruth for her faithfulness and provides a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, I've mentioned that several times. In that culture, Leverite marriage, it was, it was commanded That if a woman in your family was left without a husband, it was your duty, the next in line, to marry her, so that the husband or the the, the wife of your brother or your your cousin or whoever it was it it was laid out was was cared for, and your brother's line would would not end. And so Boaz comes in and fights for her. he, He shrewdly negotiates for her in the city gate. Becoming her closest kinsman redeemer as the next redeemer step back. And how does the Lord use that? I want us to look at Ruth chapter 4. What is the result of this? The Lord looking through, or working through widows, working through helpless, bringing in the picture of a kinsman redeemer. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And he, and may his name be renowned in the land. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you. Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Isn't this a beautiful picture of verse 16? If there is an older widow in your household, you care for her. And so Ruth here is the faithful widow and the faithful woman in the family in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And when the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. Do not stop here. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The Lord used the faithfulness of a widow to bring in the king David, the king who would receive a covenant from God, to have a son who would sit on the throne forever, who would be the faithful husband, kinsman, redeemer that the tribe of Judah desperately needed, that all tongues, tribes, and nations would need. And he does it through a faithful widow He honors the woman who honors her family. He blesses the household of Naomi. And through the line of David, the angels in heaven have been singing praise and glory to Emmanuel. And the saints in glory will be singing and praising him forever. This is who we are. We, as the church, are people redeemed through this covenant. Through our King, who turns weeping widows into beautiful brides, who takes the helpless and does something glorious through them, who would have thought that Naomi and Ruth would be used in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So for us, church, I want you to walk away from here knowing confidently that our Lord cares for his people eternally and temporally. In marriage, in singleness, early in life and end of life, he has created his church to be a place of security, comfort, growth. And this is a detriment to those who forsake the local gathering. And it is a detriment to those who distort it for their selfish purposes. Therefore, church, we are to exercise discernment and prudence In Christ, everyone gets a crown, but not everyone gets a trophy. We don't reward foolish behavior. We correct it. We rebuke it. Let us honor the faithful without hesitation and instruct the restless so that everyone may be above reproach. And what a great witness to the world when the church sets an example in spiritual, financial, and familial matters. So, church, let us be Christ's hands and feet, faithful servants of our great and gracious King. We are no longer widows, orphans, and sojourners. We are sons, the body, the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning. You are awesome. Your plan of redemption is just incredible. There has not been one errant word in your scriptures. There is not one failed promise. There is not one failed prophecy, but everything you promised to your people, everything you have been doing throughout history, you have fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. May we look to him as our husband, May our hearts be devoted to him and no other. May we long for him as a deer pants for water. May we cling to him as Mary laid at his feet as he taught. May those who are faithful be honored and encouraged. May we look to the examples of the faithful in our body in order to imitate them. May those who are restless learn to work. learn to be devoted to the lord may they learn from the faithful lord we desire that our body be above reproach that we all be presented mature before you as pastors our heart is to see the sheep protected and built up and so we must discern what you have given us and to be wise stewards over it lord we just want to be found faithful we want to be the faithful ones We don't want to stand before you with all of our efforts and all of our things and all the things that we have accomplished. We stand before you humbly in Christ's righteousness. He has brought us home. He has made us stand in him, and we praise God. We praise you for our redemption. We praise you for your spirit that reminds us of this, that sanctifies us, that draws us together. Lord, protect your church. Build up your church. Bring those who serve and love one another because you came to serve and love them and laid down their life for them. We praise you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.